wanted to start this episode just making sure that everyone is taking care of themselves. So before I get into this month's interview, I wanted to quickly talk about stress. As this is tangentially a mental health podcast, it feels fitting. Stress manifests itself in so many negative ways inside our bodies through headaches, stomach aches, insomnia. I once couldn't swallow anything because I was stressed so badly. It also comes out in interpersonal relationships, blow-ups, fights with your partner, friends, road rage, bad decisions. Stress can also well up and exacerbate symptoms of illnesses, which I'm sure we're all pretty terrified of right now. So it's crucial to cut off stress before it gets that far. Using methods like meditation or working out or reading, but I also like to use CBD oil. There are a lot of shitty CBD products out there. I know because I've tried most of them. But the one that I've used that I do feel an impact with and has chilled me out is Jupiter. I've been taking it every day this week and I already feel my stress cycle breaking. The mornings are when I feel most stressed. Shout out to my morning catastrophic thinkers. But if you're a nighttime worrier, it also really helps with sleep. I've talked to the wonderful makers of Jupiter and they're willing to give my listeners 10% off using code Brittany. It's B-R-I-T-T-A-N-Y when you go to getjupiter.com. I've also put a link in the show notes where you can go. If you feel the stress starting to well up, give Jupiter a shot. Welcome back to another episode of Don't Tell the Babysitter Mom's Dead, a podcast hosted by me, Brittany Ashley, where once a week I interview a new guest who's lost their mother, and then we do a deep dive into a pop culture moment with authentic dead mom representation. This month, I interviewed Ben Pistorius. Ben is a storyteller from Salt Lake City, Utah. When Ben was 20 years old on a Mormon mission trip, their mom unexpectedly passed away from a colloid cyst in her brain. My mom was always really fun-loving, and I know you know a lot of this is that rose-colored glasses afterwards. But also, I just remember having so much fun with her. She she was a stay-at-home mom, and she played with us all the time. I just remember all sorts of fun activities that she always had for us, uh, crafty stuff. I don't remember this as a little kid, but I know as I grew up, I could see more of a temper in her also. So I don't know why I don't remember it as a kid so much, but she was a redhead and had like the classic redhead temper, you know, that that people talk about. She was just passionate about everything. And so when something got her dander up, she, she had to share uh, how passionate she was about it. My mom grew up out in Oregon and my dad out here in Utah. And after their missions, she came out to visit him for a week. And at the end of that week, he had proposed to her and they were getting ready to be married by then. So, Wait, they got engaged after a week? Uh, yeah, they, they did know each other wow. on the mission for uh, about three months, but. Uh, yeah, after a week of serious dating here. And to be fair, that's, that's actually a pretty normal thing. My, my wife and I used to brag about how our dating time was long, being a year between when we met and got married. And that, and that was long. So <laughs> it's, it's definitely a thing, especially any Mormons that come down to BYU. I think it's changing a lot now, which is good. I, I really think that that does a lot of disservices to people, but that's a whole different thing. I love that lesbians, we always get the stereotype of you hauling, but all along it was the Mormons. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, <laughs> Were your parents married the whole time? They were not. They uh, did get divorced 
when I was about 14. I think that's when I started noticing the temper because I was the oldest and a lot of times I was the one she would then direct it at. When I say that, that sounds in an abusive way, but it was more just like she's frustrated with things. And I remember her later telling me that she really appreciated the way I handled it when her temper went off. I was very much just a calm presence in the room. It allowed her to throw it all out there and not have it escalate more. There were three of us. My little sister was the youngest. She was my dad's favorite. I, I mean, you know, they, they don't say it, but you can kind of tell. <laughs> he protected her. I, I feel bad for my brother because, you know, as we went through this, we, we talk about this now. We all kind of agree that I was my mom's favorite. We got along really well. We uh, could just sit down and talk. She just loved living life. We went on a lot of mini vacations to Las Vegas so that it was warmer. It, she was just very outside, sunny person. And that was that was her. Did you see her shift at all after the divorce? Yeah, very much. In fact, she talked a lot about it with me being the oldest. I, I think I took the place of dad a lot of times. She talked about how she kind of threw her whole identity a lot into raising us as kids. And now that we were getting older, it was really hard for her to figure out where her place was. And with dad being gone, I mean, he was still around. My, my parents' divorce was really fairly easy, at least from our perspective. We, we didn't see them do a lot of fighting. We didn't see them hating on each other or anything. My dad still came around and they cooperated. And I, I guess even uh, towards the end, they were dating again. So, I mean, it, it was a very different dynamic for a divorced family. And did you shoulder a lot of responsibility for taking care of your, your younger siblings as well? Yeah, I did. Definitely a lot of just helping them along. I don't think I ever really did like the dad thing, but I, I definitely was there to help encourage them so that we could make things easier for mom it is really where I, I just came from. At the time, I was definitely happy to do it. I think later looking back, there was a lot that I missed out on growing up. Like everybody always thought I was much older than I was because I think I grew up a little bit too fast from that. Do you feel like you and your mom got closer after the divorce? Yeah, definitely. Uh, especially as I got to the point where I was working and could drive, I'd go visit her at work and we'd go get lunch together. And I think that's one thing that I got that my siblings didn't get so much was some of that more like mature I, I, relationship. Yeah, it, it, it was pretty much an adult relationship. You know, I wasn't quite an adult yet, but it, it was that adult kid to parent relationship that I think I got and my siblings didn't really get. Mormonism is a... I, I call it a high-demand religion. It's one that demands a lot. I, I think I was benefited a lot by the fact that my family was never really as hard-nosed Mormon as a lot of other people. Growing up, the, the phrase that they use in, in the Mormon church is active or not active. My family was often on active, which, which meant sometimes we would go every week three-hour-long block of church. And then there were other times where it, we weren't so much, but we definitely were enough that both my siblings and I, we, we were baptized and given all the, the normal advancements that go through it, which is a whole lot. I think using the divorce as a, as a measuring time period is good because I think mm -hmm. right around then 
was when I think as I was being forced into that maturing more, I also needed some extra support. And so I moved myself more into the church than the rest of my family. Uh, there was a long period of time right around then when I was the only one going and I was going every single week. And I think I let a lot of that just consume my identity because that was where I needed to be at the time, just to believe that there was a purpose to all this um, and that it was going to get better. Growing up in Utah, it's really hard to have any sort of social life without being part of the Mormon church because you look at the map of a map of the neighborhood and it's easier to point out the homes that are not Mormons than it is to find the ones that are. And most of them are active members and there's very much a stigma on being not active that makes it really hard. A lot of it was that, the friendship, but also I think a lot of it was just being able to believe in a God that was guiding things along and going to make things better eventually. There's a lot in Mormonism that is part of the culture that's very much stigmatizing those who are not doing what they're supposed to. And so I think there was definitely some of that feeling there, even though I, d I don't think I specifically ever thought, oh, I'm better than the rest of my family. I think that we all kind of had that lurking there in the back of our mind, just because that's what's drilled into you. Doing these things makes you better, you, you know? And so it was just, I think, a little bit of distance, especially on the Sundays when I would go. But also, I feel like there was a bit more respect from my mom in that. She was always the one that would drive me over to the church building and pick me up afterwards. And this is pure speculation, but it felt like she kind of respected me more for doing this, even though I was the only one. So, Did you ever ponder or come to a conclusion about why she wasn't as active as you in the church? I did not. The church makes it very hard to think about that. The answers that were always told to us is that the reason that people don't come to church pretty much come down to three things. Either they were offended by somebody who was there, they just wanted to sin, or they were lazy. And I knew my mom hadn't been offended by anybody, and I knew she wasn't just wanting to sin. And so I think subconsciously that was that that third option was where I went because that those were the only three options that were really presented to us. I hate that now, looking back at where I was. I, I mean, my wife and I now, there are several times we'll talk about the past, and all, all we can really say is, I, I'm sorry for the things I said and did when I was Mormon, because there's there's a lot of that. There's a lot of that there. Mm -hmm. Every good Mormon boy is expected to go on a mission. There was a little delay for me, some stuff with high school. I was really good at testing, but really terrible at homework. So I had to redo some high school stuff before I left. And I think... During that time, my mom was looking at me getting ready to leave, and she started to actually look at what she wanted. Just before I left, she started taking classes at Salt Lake Community College to uh, start working. Uh, she, she'd started a psychology degree at one point, and I think she was working on continuing that. It was definitely a big time for both of us because I was going on my mission. She was really trying to get back into the church. And we had a lot of conversations about that and working towards that together and also working towards helping my dad get back into the church as well. As I was really preparing to go, this time where she sat down with me and told me that she'd had a dream that as I went out on my mission, 
my dad came back to the church and they got remarried. That was what I wanted so much back then. That was what I felt needed to happen. It definitely put a whole new meaning to what I was getting ready to go do because I felt it was going to do that for our family. For Mormons, the mission is a big thing. It's a, it's a two-year-long out there trying to convert people it is really the, the whole purpose. There's some amount of, oh, yeah, you're also there to serve, but that's very much a secondary thing unless you're in certain areas where you're not allowed to proselyte like China or different things like that. For the most part, it's very much you're getting yourself ready to go out and, as they said, share the joy of the gospel. And so it's it's two years of six days a week, probably 12 hours a day wow. working on that. And that that one day that we have off, our off time was supposed to end at five o'clock. So then we were supposed to go out for another four hours, even on our, our day off. So it was a very intense conversion thing for us. I, I mean, and and that's the thing is, honestly, it, it also was very much meant to convert us so that we'd go home and bring our family into the church afterwards. Things have changed recently, which I'm very glad for the the poor boys who are poor boys and girls because they're our sisters out there but they're they're not expected to go the the men young men are expected to go i'm gonna be just blunt here the church is extremely misogynistic mm. <laughs> women are expected to stay home and focus on creating a family in fact if a sister missionary receives a proposal while she's on her mission and she wants to accept it, that is a way to get honorably released. That's not so much for the men. The men are supposed to go out and, uh, and do this. But for uh, when I was out there, anybody who is out there, you could write letters home and receive letters from home, but you could only call home twice a year for Mother's Day and Christmas. It's also a kind of isolating time. So I went out and was able to write home, wrote to my mom, and she wrote back all the time. Let's see, I, I went out in September, so I got to have one phone call home with her by the next March uh, was when she passed away. It was really unexpected. Like I'd said, my, my parents had started dating again. Beginning of March, they took a family trip down to Las Vegas. Nobody had told me about this because, I, I mean, we had very limited communication, but I guess she'd been having some headaches and memory loss for a few weeks before this. And she had a, a CAT scan scheduled for after in order to just check things out and see what was going on. This is all stuff I've heard afterwards. But one day she... Uh, she told them that she was feeling really tired and had a headache. And so they went back to the hotel room early. And I don't know if it was on the way there or when they got there, she passed out. And so they, they took her to the hospital down there and they found uh, a colloid cyst, uh, which is fatty tissue that was blocking spinal fluid from leaving her her cranium. So it had built up pressure. They drilled into her head to relieve pressure, but she was already kind of out. And this is about when I got called. Like I said, my dad was, was in a more so out of the church phase in his life. So he didn't respect what the, hey, these are the rules are as much. So he felt, you know, I'm just, I've got his phone number that and uh, I'm just going to call. And so he, he called me straight up, told, told me a little bit of what had happened and that she was in the hospital in a coma. This was on a Friday that I got this call. I kind of threw myself into 
what I was doing there, thinking, oh, you know, there, there was that dream she had. Everything's going to be all right if I focus here and do all the stuff I'm supposed to here, then she's going to be all right. The rules on the mission are very strict. There's a lot of you need to follow the rules and, uh, you know, up at 6.30, ready by 8, studying for an hour alone, studying for an hour with your, your companion who you're supposed to stay by all day long, except when going to the bathroom, then out proselyting all day. And, and with all these different rules, it's very hard to be perfect. And uh, sometime during that weekend of work, there were several mistakes that I made at the time that I'm like, ah, beating myself up over hoping that everything's going to be better, that, that what I'm doing is going to be good enough to save her. Somehow it, it was all on me. There was some news on Monday. It, it seemed like she might still be responsive, but that was what was reported from my dad. I, I later found out that what he saw and thought was her being responsive was actually one of the things that the doctor saw as, oh no, she might be brain dead. I uh, had an aunt who also, my dad's sister, who also had a colloid cyst that had some of the same problems. They had gone in and, and fixed everything, and she, she had actually lived through it. But the time before the colloid cyst, I remembered her as my fun aunt, telling jokes all the time, always with the kids. I just loved playing with her. And this, this was when I was young that this happened. After the colloid cyst, I just remember such a huge change in her. She, she became very rigid, couldn't joke around nearly as well, couldn't stand things that were outside of her normal as well. For me, she, she went from the fun aunt to okay, she's just another one of the adults. After I found out that that was what my mom had, I hoped for anything but that outcome because I really didn't want to have to build a whole new relationship with a, what would essentially be a different person. And so that was one of the really scary things for me during that waiting period. By... Wednesday, the next Wednesday morning, I don't know exactly how they had figured it out or what all was going on because I was so cut off but from most of it. But they, they did determine that she was brain dead and that she was not going to wake up. And so as I'm sitting there doing my morning study, my dad called up and uh, said, hey, because of the divorce, uh, my brother, sister, and I, we were the, the people who were in charge of her health. And so, you know, it was just a quick, Ben, I need you to talk to this nurse and tell her that you give permission for her brother to make my part of the decision. And I did, and he said, I'll call you right back. So I, you know, he, I still didn't know what was going on, but I, but I also kind of did. And so, uh, came time for us to go out and proselyte. But I, I uh, convinced my companion, hey, let's just do our lunch break now, and then we'll go out after. As we were doing that, my dad called up and told me that that my mom wasn't going to wake up, and they had decided to pull life support because that was what she'd wanted. And uh, so she had passed away. He told me he was going to call my mission president and tell him because that was the official way that I was supposed to find out. Wanted me to think about what I was going to do as part of this. The unspoken expectation was to stay on the mission 
regardless of what's going on at home. So he called the mission president. Uh, the mission president came over and, and talked to me about it. And because of where my mom and I were before, I felt like I needed to stay out there because that was what she would have wanted me to do. So I, I decided to do that. My, my dad told me later that my mission president told him that they needed to work together to encourage me to stay out there. But then when he was there, you know, the, the language around going home was, no one would blame you if you go home. Essentially, it's the wrong choice, but it's okay if that's what you choose. Yeah, as a 20-year-old, I just, I don't know how much, how much I really chose there, but that is what I ended up doing, so. As we were talking earlier, you had said that you essentially became more active to gain support. And in this moment of needing the most support, did you feel like you got any of that? Yes and no. I think I got a lot of internal support. That whole hoping that there's something else, believing that there's something else. and uh, But I think there was not near as much external support. There were four of us on the mission who had all, in, in that mission area, who had all lost somebody while we were gone or shortly before. Wow. I didn't know about these people beforehand, yet afterwards there was a kind of, we were the four, you know? It, it, we all knew about each other and we all had that shared experience that, that we all kind of talked about. But for the most part, I had decided to stay. And so I felt like I had to work. To, I, I had to be there for a purpose. You know, if I was going to yeah. miss out on my mom's funeral, I had to work my butt off. And I, I did. I, I feel so, so bad for my companion at the time because I was, I was always mad at him for every little outside the mission rules thing that we do it, it, you know it was lunch times a half an hour we need to be out at a half an hour so that we can be out working because otherwise why was I still there you know how much longer did you have left of the trip at this point about a year and a half oh wow so still. this was like towards the beginning yeah 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 this was just six months in so at one point, I, I started developing ulcers. Second time I'd done it in, in my life, but you know it had been a really long time. Um, and uh, they set up a uh, couple appointments with a therapist to talk about that, but it was really only two or three appointments. Most of my getting through the grief was was working through my faith, and I found you know. We, you're looking for looking for things to believe you're going to find them and so i found you know some things that were just oh here here's uh things to show me that that god was preparing me for this but i think about 2 or 3 months later i remember one point where i had a dream about her dying uh in my dream she died in a car crash but it was really the first time I kind of experienced it and I woke up just bawling because it was the first time it felt real. The other thing I did to work through my grief, I, I, uh, I had kept all my letters because I thought it was, you know, it, it was going to be a thing that I could, oh, here's all my letters from my mission showing my kids, you know, that that's what I thought about it at the time. But then after that, I uh, pulled out all my mom's letters and bundled them together. And they, uh, they stayed in a special spot in my desk. And I reread those on a fairly regular basis. So when you finally went back home, there's a lot here, but, you know, your siblings as well as your father 
they had been kind of like living in this loss for the last year and a half. And so how did it feel then to come back home and feel the loss of your mom no longer being in your home after perhaps the rest of your family has already not come to terms with it, but have been living in that for the past year and a half while you've been away? How did how did all that feel? Oh, man. One thing that I, I haven't talked about at all is my dad got remarried in that year and a half. So I was also coming home to essentially a whole new mom that my brother and sister were having problems with. I went in there. I actually did pretty well with with her. But it was definitely different. Before I'd left, my mom and I got into a bunch of different self-help stuff together that, that we'd enjoyed. We'd ended, ended up painting a couple different rooms, extremely bright colors, absolutely garish, but just, you know, <laughs> it, it was fun. Some of that had been undone because of, I, I mean, right rightly so how how garish it was but you know now it was my dad and my stepmom living in 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 that house and so uh she'd very much insisted on some of it being repaint, repainted they decided to uh leave my room how it had been that that was one of the rooms we'd painted they decided to leave that so that i could have some some level of comfort coming back. Also, it was definitely hard getting off the plane and coming back. First thing I wanted to do was go visit her gravestone for the first time. And it was a little weird going there. My dad and brother and sister already kind of had their own rituals as they were there because they'd been visiting uh, cleaning off the the headstone next to hers because nobody really visited that one and it gave them something to do and seeing that there for the first time and really wishing she could be there to see that I had completed the mission like like she'd wanted, you know? Land Before Time was one of those animated films that I avoided at all costs when I was a kid because I heard it was Bambi levels of sadness, which makes sense because one of the film's producers, a little known filmmaker named Steven Spielberg, wanted to do a film similar to Bambi, but with only dinosaurs. Originally, Spielberg, as well as an equally unknown producer, George Lucas, wanted the film to have no dialogue. But then they decided to reject that idea and use voice actors in order to make it more appealing to kids. And then in 1988, Land Before Time hit theaters. The film follows Littlefoot, a young long-necked dinosaur. While playing one day with one of his friends, a large sharp-toothed dinosaur attacks them and Littlefoot's mom comes to the rescue. But after some fatal injuries and an earthquake, great timing, Littlefoot's mom dies. I'll be with you. 
even if you can't see me. What do you mean, if I can't see you? I can always see you. Littlefoot, let your heart guide you. It whispers, so listen closely. During the entire film, Littlefoot is guided by his late mom's voice while on his journey to the Great Valley. I loved the first one. I I don't remember who we borrowed it from, but we borrowed it from somebody at some point, and I watched it so much. That was the one movie that I really, you know, watched four or five times, I'm sure, in a day. I don't know for sure, (laughs) because... I was pretty young at the time, but I I just remember that I watched that so many times that I think we actually broke their tape um, (laughs) and and had to uh, replace it. I just remember just loving that adventure that that they went on. You know, I'd watched Bambi and other Disney movies where, where these things happen, but I think that's the first one that I really recognized that sorrow and that death of the parent there. The biggest thing I remember is afterwards, him sitting there with his mother as she's dying and he's almost like begging her not to go. Yeah. And just how that really hit him, Mm -hmm. you know? At first I was like, oh, he is fully aware of what's happening and she doesn't even have to say the words I'm dying like even though he's a child he has fully grasped what is happening but then in like the next view I'd be like oh he's fully in denial Um, but then I kind of like put it together that it's kind of both you know like a very innocent childlike response to know that it's happening but not wanting to believe it yeah yeah absolutely and I, I do remember you know there are several times throughout the movie where he thinks he sees her again and and goes running after her, calling mom, like yeah. really believing she's there. It, it is that thing where it's both real and not. I, I mean, mm-hmm. I definitely really felt that myself. It's really interesting that Littlefoot essentially on in this film is on like a journey or a mission. Did you ever like put those parallels together or feel any type of way about it? So I just recently rewatched it for the first time in a long time. And most definitely, you know, his mom's dying words are essentially go to the Great Valley. You know, she talks about earlier, he asked her if she's ever seen it. She says, no, but I feel it's there. And, and it very much feels like a parallel to, you know, where I was, where he threw himself into, we have to find the Great Valley because my mom said it's there and that's where I need to go. Yeah. And that's very much what I did. You know, I I need to be here because that's what my mom wanted for me. And throwing myself into the into it just as much as Littlefoot did. You said it's been about 14 years, correct? Yeah. So you also had mentioned that you're not uh, you're not Mormon anymore. Does that mean that you're not active or does that mean that you've like fully kind of left uh, the religion as a whole? I have fully left the religion as a whole. So I got home from my mission, spent a little time out on my own uh, with some roommates you know, just working and going to school. And then I met my wife around 25 years old. Like I said, we we dated and married within about a year. And we very much were, were both very into the whole Mormon thing. So we had our life planned out according to that. Started having kids 
planned on my wife staying home with the kids because that's what you're supposed to do. And then even got to the point in Mormonism, kids get baptized at eight years old because supposedly that's old enough to make this life-changing choice. So we even got to the point where we baptized my oldest a little before that. I, I say a little. Really, a long time before that, um, I kind of started a journey towards leaving the church. And it, it does take a very long time for most people because, because it's so demanding of everything and they've got all these answers laid out for you. Um, I'm, I'm going to say gaslighting answers. I'm sure some of my family will not feel great about me saying that, but also I, I feel it's true. So makes it really hard to, to really question. But after I got married, some of the things we're told in order to believe is, is uh, praying to ask if it's true and feel the spirit to tell us it's true. My wife suffers from anxiety and depression, and that was something that she'd always struggled with, was feeling what they called the spirit, which is really, I think, just the, you know, those good feelings inside that we get from petting puppies and doing things we like. But because of her struggles, she always struggled with that, and it was hard for me to understand that because I'd always thought that everybody who lived it and prayed and did all the stuff they were supposed to was supposed to be able to feel that. And so that was kind of my first cracks in it all. And, and then eventually I started learning about some of the history of the church and started to counter the, the narrative that I'd always been told then we get to where my where we baptized my oldest and uh i was kind of on the border then during that time and about 6 months later i finally came to the decision that that really the the evidence there is just yeah i can find this little thing that that might be a possibility to contradict this piece or this little thing that might be a possibility to contradict this other piece. But when I look at it all, it's a huge mass of all sorts of stuff that just didn't seem like it could be true, you know? And that was definitely a difficult journey for me to go through because I had placed so much trust in it and so much hope in, oh, my mom passed away and she's in Mormon heaven and that's where I'm going to meet her and letting go of all that. It's only been about a year now and uh, it's been really hard, especially looking back at my time on my mission and wishing I could have done some of that better, especially going home, just going home for the funeral even. And it's, it's really hard to reconcile that because of where my mom and I were when we last talked and where I am now feeling like all of that was a lie, but it's also connected to my mom. And it, it's just a big tangle of feelings and contradictions. I am able to hold on to that and recognize that I couldn't have done any better. Yeah. But it also, I, I mean, there was, was a good amount of time when I left where I was just so angry about it. I felt like the church kind of stole my last little bit with my mom. You know, when you kind of came to this decision, was it something that you and your wife both agreed on? Because it sounded like she was Mormon as well? Yeah, yeah, she was Mormon as well. Um, it was not something we agreed on at first. In fact, it it uh, it caused a lot of stress between us for a little bit. She had started her 
journey out. A lot of the historical stuff that I learned about later, she had learned about much earlier. And I knew she had learned about those things. Some part of me was always afraid to even ask her about them, about what they were that she had learned about and figured out, oh, it's okay, you know. So she had started her journey long before me, but she wasn't at that point when I finally decided I was going to leave. And it felt like a huge betrayal to her at first because, I, I mean, really, it it was, like I said, Mormonism has your life kind of all mapped out. And with me leaving, that changes a lot of that. There, there's a huge stigma on single member families, um, especially, unfortunately, especially when it's the women. My mom got that a lot when, after the divorce, you know, there were people that were there to give her comfort at very first, but then there was a kind of distance that was suddenly there between her and the other people because in order to really go to Mormon heaven, there's supposed to be a priesthood holder in the house, which is the man, you know. I could see a lot of those same fears in my wife where when, you know, I was stepping back, I was her priesthood holder, the the person that was supposed to help make it happen. And it was super scary for her. But in a way, once I stepped away and stopped helping her find excuses for the church, it was really easy for her to see how she was being hurt by it because it it really was causing her so much shame and guilt. You know, we'd go to church and it's supposed to be an uplifting thing and we'd come home and she'd feel terrible because she's not as good as all the other women there and not doing all the things she's supposed to be doing. I hated seeing her like that hated seeing what it did to her and eventually she came to see it too and so not long after i left she also left the church and we've kind of left it up to our kids a little bit we we've told them that we would take them whenever they want to go but it's not something we want to be a part of and whenever we did take them during that time. We also spent a lot of time undoing the hurtful things, the things that were very much about obey, be be perfect. I'm uh, non-binary and also asexual. Yeah. My Mormonism had an effect on my identity. I I could not see either of those things until after I left. They, they just weren't options. You know, my, my wife and I had plenty of problems going through our marriage that I can look at now and see, oh, that's because I'm asexual and I don't value the, the sexual attraction the same way she does, but it's something that I could not ever look at before. You know, there, there was only really one way to live. You grow up, Young men go on a mission, young women either do or don't, but then when you get home married by 27, there was a oft-quoted phrase that, that one of the early leaders said was, a 27-year-old single man is a menace to God. And then having kids, raising those kids with the man out, earning money, the wife at home, taking care of the kids. Eventually they go out and they go on their missions and start having their families. And then the couple can go out and start serving missions on their own again. There's pretty much that one path. I I worked at a residential treatment facility for a little while. During that time, we were helping to teach DBT therapy these types of things should be taught to everybody. You know, there are a lot of the skills that I already kind of had learned without thinking about them. 
but learning about, you know, being okay with the emotions that are there, then looking at, okay, how are these emotions affecting me? This doesn't make it a bad emotion, you know, even if it's negatively affecting me, it's still not a bad emotion. It's something that you need to feel. It's something you need to work through. It's telling you that there's something wrong and it's your way of, of trying to protect and heal yourself. And if you work with the emotion rather than try to push it down or move past it or whatever, then, then you can actually do those things, protect and heal yourself. And that, that was something that really, really helped me. I always used to think that grief was just kind of a temporary thing. I mean, that's kind of how most people, most of media portrays it, you know. Mm -hmm. That therapy really helped me see, you know, the grief never goes away. There are times where it's less, there are times where it's more, and it's something that I can continue to work with and work through. And sometimes there are things that I do because... You know, it's, it's, I feel like it's just time to feel that a little bit more mm -hmm. and remember my mom. I still pull down her letters sometimes and we'll just sit there and read through her last little bit of her life. You know, I'm a storyteller in general. I, I uh, do a lot of personal life stories and myth stories, but being able to tell stories of my mom to my kids is, I think, really helpful. A lot of it, I think, is our relationship and, and what that was to me. Also, I, I uh, try to do a lot of that full engagement that she did with me. I try to sit down and do some of these games that she did or crafts and, and make sure that I'm spending times with time with my kids in that same way that I really appreciated from my mom. Thank you for listening to this episode of Don't Tell the Babysitter Momstead. If you want to find out more about Ben, you can follow them on Twitter at Little Golden Key. If you want to support this podcast on Patreon, you can find the Patreon at patreon.com slash deadmomcast. I'm Brittany Ashley, and you can follow me at Brit27Ash on Twitter and Instagram, or go to BrittanyAshleyFunny.com. The music is by Interstellar Sarah Michelle Geller, and the logo is by Christine Tuna. <laughs>